The production of Conversations That Matter with Stuart McNish is made possible thanks to the support of Audlin Brown, BD Developments, and listeners and viewers like you. Please visit conversationsthatmatter.ca and become a patron. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. The Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius posited in his book's Meditations that all things are implicated with one another, and the bond is holy. At the time of his writing, it was a philosophical concept. Today, it has been proven by science, genomics in particular. Wade Davis, the great Canadian thinker and anthropologist, in his talk at the Dr. Rick's Distinguished Keynote Address, The Wayfinders of Genomic Wisdom, said, Studies of the human genome have left no doubt about the interconnectedness of all things. Davis went on to say, genomic science unveils the profound truth that we are all connected by the same genetic cloth. He argues indigenous perspectives combined with genomic insights can revolutionize conservation, restore ecological balance, mend cultural divisions, and provide the antidote to an ailing world. I invited Wade Davis to join me for a conversation that matters about the interconnectedness of life and why it matters. Wade, welcome. Hi, Stu. Thanks for having me. It really does matter that we understand that everything in the universe is through a remarkable connection, connected chain. I think biologically it's really important for us to understand that in terms of our genetic endowment. We're not that far removed from every other form of organic life. And, and we are all products of this extraordinary fluorescence of life that, as far as we know, uh, has never occurred. We certainly haven't documented it as having occurred in any other place in the universe. But I think culturally, the recent revelations of genetics is even more important. You know, we have indulge cultural myopia since the birth of human awareness. The idea that, you know, my, my people are the real people and everybody else has a failed attempt to be me. Most indigenous names incidentally translate the people, implying that the blokes on the other side of the hill right. are savages. And anthropology grew up, particularly in American context, North American context, as a kind of antidote to that. Um, and and each culture is a unique answer to a fundamental question. What does it mean to be human and alive? And when the peoples of the world answer that, they do so uniquely in the 7,000 languages of humanity. And so this was this incredible shattering of the European mindset. Uh, it was a sociological equivalent of splitting the atom. But what really sealed the deal was genetics. And that's what's so ironic, Stu, because when I was a student, there was a chasm between the natural sciences and the social sciences, where the very word genetics drove social sciences to, you know, to spasms of, 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 of madness, you know. And, and, you know, the social sciences saw the naturalists as being elitist, and the naturalists saw people, indigenous people in particular, as part of the problem. But the incredible thing is that in my lifetime, the geneticists have come to the fore if we accept the absolute scientific truth. The genetic endowment of humanity is a continuum. Race is an utter fiction. Uh, we are all cut from the same genetic cloth. We are yes. all descendants of the handful of people who walked out of Africa. Got to get you to hang on for a second while we take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. 
The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. So, so it's my understanding that we're talking about three different groups now. It initially was believed that there were two groups out of Africa, but uh, I, I understand recently that there was a third group of humanoids in Africa uh, that we are all descendants of. I mean, the point is that we know we're born of Africa. We know that some people stayed home. Others, probably a very small number, walked out. And right. in a very short order, 40,000 years, 2,500 human generations, brought the human spirit to every corner of the habitable world. But here... By you, walking. By walking. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, that's, that's not so unusual. I mean, if a hunting group expands its range by five miles a year over... Over the course of a hundred years, you've moved, you know, mm -hmm. you know. You, but I think the, the important point is, if we accept that truism, that we all share the same genetic endowment, well, it kind of means by definition that all human populations share the same genius, the same mental acuity, uh, the same raw intellectual potential. And this is where it comes back to anthropology, because therefore, how any one people, any collective of pe people associated by by occupancy of land, language, traditions, and interconnectedness. Um, how they choose to use that genius is just a matter of choice. So it completely puts the lie to this idea of a hierarchy of culture. And the reason that's so important is it allows us to, to recognize that there are other ways of thinking, other ways of being. And then suddenly, instead of seeing the Western uh, 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 intellectual tradition as somehow existing outside of all these dynamics, we see that it's just one of many ways of thinking. And then we can actually begin to look into it, not to dismiss it, but to understand how that way of thinking caused us to become who we are today. So particularly in terms of how we treat the environment. And that led inevitably um, to a relationship with the natural world that was based on kind of extractive model. I mean, if a mountain's just a pile of rock, why not pull it Level down? It. Yeah. Level it. And, and, and the point that anthropology tells us, and, and so the, but the, the key thing then is, is that if, if, we, if we recognize that every culture has something to say, we can also notice that other cultures interact with the world in a very different way. Climate change, the extinction crisis, has become humanity's problem, but it's critical to remember it wasn't caused by humanity. It was caused by a very narrow subset of humanity with a particular way of thinking about the world. Most cultures around the world, the ethnographic record makes absolutely clear, react, interact with the natural on a, bar, a model, not of extraction, but reciprocity. You know, some, some iteration of the basic idea <clears throat> that the earth owes its bounty to people and people in turn owe their fidelity to the to the natural world. How does that actually become operative? Well, I was raised, probably as you were, Stu, on the coast of British Columbia to believe that these forests existed to be cut. That was the foundation of the ideology of, of, of so-called scientific forestry that I was taught in school and I practiced in the woods mm -hmm. as a logger for McMillan Bloodell. Well, that made me very different than a kid from Alert Bay among the Kwakwakawak, right. who was raised at those forests, the abode of Huku, in the crooked beak of heaven. Now, again, the thing isn't who's right and who's wrong. Is a mountain a pile of rock, or is it a deity? The interesting thing, again, metaphorically, <laughs> is how the belief system mediates relationship with the natural world. And that's why, you know, 
the, the voices of humanity are here to remind us that our way is not the only way, and we're also not indelibly stamped with a way of thinking that has proved to be scientifically unwise. So one of the things about genomics I was very excited about was once we had mapped the human genome, we knew that the difference between you and me, your 13 billion bits of ACGs and Ts, is about 0.0001% yeah. different than mine. Yeah. Or AGs over yeah. there, or Samias who is in or the... Or even in, with in, another uh, primate species. Exactly. Yeah. Like, we're all so incredibly uh, <clears throat> close. Uh, and so what I found great hope in that was... Okay, armed with this information, are we now in a position where we can say, let's set aside our minor differences and, and embrace our common humanity? Yeah, you know. But we're, unfortunately, but, we're not there yet. Yeah, but you know, <laughs> Stu, I think it's just a matter of time. I mean, um, I, I, I would say that in 10,000 years, there'll be two events that happened in this century or the two centuries that will be still spoken about. One was, Christmas of 1968, I guess Christmas Eve, I think it was, when Apollo went around the dark side of the moon. And for the first time in human history, we saw not a sunrise or a moonrise, we saw an earth rise. Yeah. And, and that vision of the earth from space, you know, the famous, you know, a blue marble floating in the velvet void of space, will, had, did more to kind of change the way we think. And, and that, that has entered the zeitgeist. You know, you know when I was a kid just getting people to stop throwing garbage out of a car window was an environmental victory. No one spoke of the biosphere or biodiversity. Right. These are terms used by school children. Um, in 1970, uh, when the first Earth Day happened, um, I don't think there was a single government in the world that had administered the environment. Today, there's not one that doesn't, albeit with various you know, effectiveness. But, but what I find amazing is that, if anything, the revelations of of uh, genetics are more profound. You know, the, the, this cultural myopia I mentioned before has literally haunted us since the dawn of consciousness. You know, famously yeah. when Herodotus, five centuries before Christ, traveled east to the court of the Persian king Darius, and he had the audacity to come back to Athens and say there's something interesting going on over there, he was demonized by the people of Athens for suggest for converting with the barbarians, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that that has that's been the way of things, and what I have been surprised um, that this 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 power of this revelation hasn't really sat into the zeitgeist yet, and that's why and, I and find, yet I think is the operative word there. Yeah, no, yeah. it will, it will, yeah. it will. There's our second break. We'll be back in a moment. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. So Milton Wong from Vancouver, who was uh, such a huge supporter of Michael Smith's work and uh, was a supporter of Genome BC, and he had hoped, envisioned before he died, that based on this information that we're talking about right now, that genetics uh, has proven that we are the same, we are not different, that we were finally going to be able to move forward. And, and I think that, you know, hopefully we will. Earlier when you were talking about, you know, sort of uh, early European explorers coming with, based, uh, with early science but still being superior to those of the people who were here, we get Shackleton who gets stranded in uh, northern Canada 
And the only way that he survived, no, no, he started in the Arctic first. He got stranded for two years. And the only reason that he and his crew survived is that they were taken in by the Inuit, who taught them how to survive. And those survival techniques were what allowed him to get to the South Pole. Well, you know, I mean, that's that's wonderful to think about that because, I mean, that's how Boaz had his revelation. Boaz came over quite naive um, and... uh, his first ethnographic experience was on Baffin Island, and he got caught out in a blizzard, and he realized, just experientially, that he was completely helpless, and then he saw how the Inuit dealt with that crisis. Uh, uh, in, in my intro, we talk about how uh, in, indigenous, now you've got me uh, questioning the use yeah. of the word, but local knowledge, in, yeah. in essence, of people who have been on, in the land for the longest can help us uh, in conservation efforts and so on. And I'm thinking about the fact that we had this atmospheric river two years ago that uh, washed out the Coquihalla Highway. Um, and through an extraordinary sort of engineering effort, they uh, rebuilt the, the river. But in the rebuilding of the river, local uh, First Nations went to them and said, you know, uh, we think that if you divert the river this way, which is probably based on its historical flow, you'll avoid this problem in the future. And thankfully, the engineers went, you're right. (laughs) You're absolutely right. But it shouldn't surprise us, should it? I mean, if you go to the Amazon, um, um, take something as well known now as ayahuasca, the preparation, the psychoactive preparation, kind of the the main plant of the shaman's repertoire. Here's the interesting thing. How, in a flora, of 80,000 species of vascular plants, did the Amerindians learn to combine these two morphologically distinct denizens of the rainforest to create this biochemical version of the whole being greater than the sum of the parts? The only scientific explanation would be trial and error, yes. which is quickly exposed as a meaningless, meaningless euphemism. If you ask the shaman, they say, well, the plants taught us. How about the Polynesian wayfinders? You know, European transports were hugging the shores of continents well into the 17th century until the British solved the problem of longitude with the invention of the chronometer. We know that 10 centuries before Christ, the ancestors of the Polynesians set sail into the rising sun. Mm -hmm. You know, within a thousand years, they reached Tonga and Samoa and Fiji, and then they stopped for 10 centuries, but then they moved on 4,000 kilometers across the Pacific to the Marquesas, you know, uh, south. Uh, east to Rapa Nui, Easter Island, northwest to Hawaii, and eventually around the time of the First Crusade, reaching Aotearoa, New Zealand. And and they did that with no navigational aids, as we would describe them, whatsoever. And what's more, it was an oral tradition. They didn't have the written word. What's more, it was all based on dead reckoning. So you didn't have a compass bearing to where you were going to go. You only knew where to go by knowing where you were, and that was only known by remembering how you got there. Right. So the wayfinder, sitting monk-like on the stern of the vessel over a three-week, four-week journey, had to remember every sign of the stars, the moon, the winds, um, the currents, the signs of the sea. And if both that body of knowledge and the order of its acquisition was lost, should he or she fall asleep, for example, the, the voyage could end in disaster. And yet, somehow, they 
we're able to do that. And, and we know that now. The, the Hokulea is right now doing a circumnavigation of the Pacific. I've sailed on the Hokulea with the Polynesian sail. I mean, they, they can name 250 stars in the night sky. They can sense the presence of atolls of islands beyond the visible horizon just by watching the waves coming across the hull of the vessel. They can be in the darkness in the, uh, in the, in the, in, in the, um, in the catamaran, you know, in, in the hold, if you will, um, and they can sense as many as five sea swells moving through the vessel, distinguishing those caused by weather disturbances from the deep currents that pulsate across the ocean. So, I mean, I mean, the, the, this, this is what we tried to do at the National Geographic. You know, when, when we, we tried to take on this issue of language loss, half the language in the world at peril, when we tried to celebrate the wonder of culture, we didn't do it through polemics or politics, we did it through storytelling. And we tried to take our audience to places and cultures where the, where the, the utilization of our common genius was so dramatic and so undeniable that people would kind of, you know, click and realize, hey, you know, we all are equally brilliant, you know. And, not, and so, like, you know, we always had a tagline, Stu, like, you know, uh, if you took all of the genius that allowed us to put a man on the moon and apply it to the ocean, what you would get is Polynesia. Or in Tibet, uh, you know, we, we, we were speaking about the Buddhist science of the mind and how, how you know, uh, through meditative practice, the fourth of the noble truths, which is a delineation of the practice which can lead to revelation. And a lama said to me, you know, you, we in Tibet actually don't believe you went to the moon, but you did. You may not believe that we achieve enlightenment in one lifetime, but we do. Third and final break. We'll be right back. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. Earlier when you were talking about uh, speaking to the trees, I started thinking about the, you know, the secret life of trees. Mm -hmm. But also, uh, you know, our connection here in, in this conversation is about genomics. And if you take a look at the genome of a tree, it is significantly more complicated than ours. Mm. And in, in talking to Dr. Mike Dixon at uh, Guelph University, he really studied uh, the genome of trees. He said, well, of course. He said, you get to move around. Yeah. But, but a tree yeah. has to, once it, once it determines that's where it's going to live, yeah. it has to be able to endure uh, excessive moisture, a lack of moisture, wind, heat, cold, uh, variety of diseases. And through this incredible web of, of roots, trees talk to one another. Yeah, and, yeah. and, you know, and, and I take a look at the success of trees. Uh, they have found their way around the world well, in every single kind of environment but, there but, is. You know, like, and there's more of them but, than there but, are you know, of us. But, but, you know, it's like, um, <laughs> you know, we now know a lot of things. But there was a kind of a hippie book that came out in the 70s called, uh, uh, I don't know, it was Secret Life of Plants or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And, it, you know, yeah. but I remember, we actually know that some of the stuff the guy was suggesting actually may, you know, he was... Uh, but and genomics pr starts yeah, to prove it out. But at the yeah. time, it's, it sort of felt like hippie ethnography. And, and I remember my, tr my friend Tim saying, uh, you know, why would a plant give a shit about Mozart? And even if it did, why should that impress us? They can eat light. Isn't that enough? You know, and I always say that, you know, um, one of the things that I, you know, I cherish the fact that I discovered biology. You know, I, I, it's amazing. You can easily go through a four-year university program and never study biology, which is kind of extraordinary. I mean, you could never 
graduate if you didn't know the difference between a painting and a photograph. But we graduate people all the time who can't recite the formula of photosynthesis. I maintain right. that no one should be able to run for office if they can't recite the formula of photosynthesis. This incredible verse that says, you know, carbon dioxide and water sparked by photons of light gives us the food we eat and the air we breathe. That's well, and the enzyme Rubisco. Yeah. But Without the thing, it. But the thing is, so, you know, one of the things is that, you know, to me, science was like, a, like when I, it, it was so mind-blowing. I came back from the Amazon where I really discovered plants, you know, and I, I was a very precocious plant collector, but I hadn't really studied botany. And uh, I remember the summer course I took when I, for, I was very old, you know, I, was, I mean, I was like third or fourth year of university and ended up getting a PhD in botany. But I, I remember the night that I just understood the, um, the photosynthetic pathway. Right. I just went nuts. And I thought, I've, it, to me, I, one of the things, I was an anthropologist, so the metabolic pathways that intimidated students of botany, for me, were like origin myths. So I memorized them just effortlessly. And when I figured out photosynthesis, I just went nuts. I, I actually went from desk to desk in the science library, grabbing people. Do you know what they... And I was actually escorted out by the security. You know, I think I'm the only student ever at Harvard to be escorted out for elation at an intellectual discovery. <laughs> but the other thing about science is it's always, it always seems to go hand in hand with arrogance in the sense that, you know, you, you can just, you know, imagine those doctors back in the 18th century or uh, bleeding George Washington as he lay dying, you know, having dosed him with arsenic and mercury and then pumping out how many pints of blood and that, you know, the, it, it, which was a sort of protocol at the time. Right. You can just see the pomposity. You can almost smell the powder in their wigs, you know, as, right. they, as they with such formality and such certainty pres prescribe those sorts of behaviors. It's a good image to remember um, when we contemplate where science is today. Like, I mean, I'm thinking back, you know, I used to work in, you know, for a year in a logging camp on Haida Gwaii in 1978 or so. And uh, I can tell you that in the year I was there as a forestry engineer, uh, there wasn't a single decision made that had anything to do with the environment whatsoever. You know, if there was a, yeah. a salmon stream was just a, a draw with a little bit of water in it, you know. And if I had told my, 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 my guys on the rigging that, uh, you know, plants talk to each other. I mean, they would have, like, you know, called the Mounties, you know, and yet now we know. So, I mean, right. I mean, I think it's always worthy, worth remembering how little we, by definition, know and how much there's still to be discovered. And that's really why I think the whole genetic uh, genome endeavor has been the most sterling example of, of human achievement. I mean, no scientific endeavor. I mean, maybe some innovation in medicine has saved some lives, but what other scientific initiative has liberated us from the worst of our faults, from this cultural myopia that's haunted us, you know? I mean, if and when people finally wake up to the truth as demonstrated by genetics, um, Maybe that's the day where finally there'll be some hope in this world. And that's a good note for us to end on because we're way over time for okay. my television program, but the, all of this will, will exist online. Thank you very much for your time. Well, today. thanks, Stu. Yeah. Please visit conversationsthatmatter.ca and become a patron. It's thanks to listeners and viewers and the ongoing support of Audley Brown and Beattie Developments that the production of this program is possible.